up, Internet? Prancer belongs to the canyon now. My name is Matthew Kroll. Uh, hello. Would you like to talk to me about dinosaurs? No? Okay. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film The Mitchells versus The Machines. Yes, I'm so excited about this. Blessed of all because it was uh, both of our respective birthday weeks this week. We both had birthdays. That's right. You did something good, positive, raised some money, I hear. Tell me about that. Well, I, yeah, I talked about it a little bit. I guess it went live as we did the Mortal Kombat one. Yeah. Yeah, man. It was um, it was crazy. The Extra Credits community came through huge for Rise Above the Disorder, the mental health charity we were we were raising money for at my online birthday bash, bash over on Twitch. And uh, we raised over 15K when we set out to raise four. Nice. Uh, which was just so lovely. Um, and yeah, I, I saw you stopped by, so thank I you for that. I stopped by and said one word. Didn't donate, but I stopped by. Hey, listen. <laughs> And then, and then I believe one of our mods was like, "Somebody needs to get Shahir gold status." <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, just so you know, by the way, I do have a present coming, and I did order it before your birthday. Same, it is on same. its way. Uh, it, it will be coming. You can unwrap it on the show next week, perhaps. Your present? Well, we should wait. We yeah. should, we should wait and do until both your present from me and my my present from you get here, and we'll trade them in the street like <laughs> criminals, and then we'll come back on no. in the next episode. You know what we'll we gotta unwrap do? Them. What we gotta do a suitcase drop. We both have the same suitcase. Okay. We sit next to each other at the park, you know, each sipping our coffee, eating our bagels, and then I pick up your suitcase and you pick up mine. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's not really going to help, you know, the audience here, the listeners, because they won't be here for that. And it, and even if they were, even if we recorded the audio, yeah, it wouldn't be that compelling because you're not supposed to talk in those moments. Exactly. It's just all silence. But uh, listeners, if you have a better way to do a bag drop that might be of the illegal kind, please email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod with your favorite espionage tricks or uh, sneaky... Uh, uh, crime tactics. I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I don't know where you went just now. Uh, it was, I, became, it was I like, sort of became a pirate halfway through that, which is yeah. strange. Yeah, I tactics, yar. Tactics, yar. This chair be high, says I. <laughs> uh, th- that's a fun fact. That's the only Simpsons quote I ever use. Which I don't one? know why. This-, I, this chair be high, says I. <laughs> it's from one of the ho- Treehouse of Horrors. But okay. regardless... Uh, what about you, Sheer? What did you do on your birthday? Uh, I was working, and I ate some cake. That's about it. <laughs> okay. All right. Not bad. Yeah, not bad. Actually, no, you and I went for a bir- uh, bike ride on my we birthday, did. which was lovely. I was, I was, I was teeing you up. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I for- I'd, I'd forgotten that I'd done it, because I that was the first thing we did that day, and I pretty much immediately afterwards went to work and ate a piece of cake. It was nice. I uh, I took Shahir to the most beautiful place in New York City, the insane asylum, the decommissioned one on Roosevelt Island. Right. Uh, it was very romantic. It was, yeah. And, and we should have done we, the bag drop then, but of course we, we should have. We should have done the bag drop, and then we got we got yelled at by security for trying to ride our bikes through the <laughs> through the area. <laughs> it but was that's a romantic okay. morning. I have to upon reflection now. Yeah. It was a romantic morning, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was overcast, but but still bright. Yep. And we went through the the weird. Listeners, this is getting real specific, and I apologize, but, like, have you ever been to Roosevelt Island? Like, 
it's cool, but it's weird. <laughs> like anyone in, in New York City especially kind of knows. But if you've ever been to New York City, even as a tourist, I'm curious how many people go to Roosevelt Island outside of taking the Sky Tram just there right. and then getting back on and going back to Manhattan. Which was in Spider-Man, the first Spider-Man, when yeah. Spider-Man has to make the choice between saving the people on the Sky Train or saving Mary Jane, right? And he manages to, to do both. We are who we choose to be. <laughs> now choose. Yeah. So strange. Uh, that performance from uh, William Defoe is got to be one of the most like dial to a living performances of all time. I love it, and it has so many amazing <laughs> memeable quotes. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, I'm somewhat of a scientist myself. You know, I'm somewhat of a scientist myself. <laughs> and my favorite one though is is whenever you have a secret that you don't want anyone to know, all you have to do is look at them intently, like with big bug eyes, and go. Don't tell Harry. <laughs> it's it's my favorite. And people are like, what? And I'm like, Spider-Man, motherfucker. Sam Raimi, look it up. Yeah. Um, but regardless, my relationships are going great. Um, we're not here to talk about any of that. We are here to talk about Shahir's birthday film that he chose to celebrate his birthday. Of course, I chose <laughs> Mortal Kombat. You chose poorly. Uh, I chose <laughs> mediocrely for sure, which again translates to poorly, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the Mitchells versus the Machines... I had no idea what this was until our romantic bike ride. Right. Okay. Really? Yeah. Um, I, I I put it on the schedule and I just said, and I just presumed you were as excited about it as I was. Um, never because heard of, of two names that are attached to it, which mm -hmm. is Phil Lord and Chris Miller. And I was like, that is our Lord and Savior. Hey, look at that. Spider-Verse, we tied it all back to Spider-Man. Exactly. Yeah, that's what right. I was getting to. Okay. And Spider-Verse, of course, was, was uh, I would argue, still the best Spider-Man movie that has ever been made. And um, one of our unique overlaps in terms of uh, favorite films of the year. Not, yep. not, not the absolute favorite, if I recall, right. but like definitely high on both of our lists. Uh, in a year, if I recall correctly, it was a year when there were two, I think it's the only time that's happened, there were two superhero films on my top ten list. And one was Into the Spider-Verse, and the other was Logan, uh, the, uh, the final Wolverine movie. Um, yes. So good year, a very fine year for superhero movies. <laughs> <laughs> indeed. Now, indeed. I, we should preface the fact that um, uh, Mitchell vs. Machines is produced by Phil Lord and Chris Miller. Yes, and not, not, uh, not written. Not written, nor directed, but produced by, and has the same sort of aesthetic and, I guess, comedic qualities that we've come to associate with a Lord and Miller joint. But... Uh, we should we should really highlight the fact that this was directed by Michael Rianda and Jeff Rowe, also yes. written by the two of them. That said, I did do some research on Lord and Miller because I was like, these two people have become uh, synonymous with a brand of both comedy and, um, I guess, property development. Sure. Uh, and by, by property development, I don't mean housing. Of course, I mean uh, intellectual property, such as Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the 22 Jump Street series, uh, most notably the sort of um, failed attempt to uh, direct the uh, Han Solo movie in the Star Wars universe. I but still would have loved to see what that looked like. I, I, I'm, I'm, I have not seen Ron Howard's version, but I, I assure you now, if, if Phil Lord and Chris Miller had done it, I, I would be there uh, all bells and whistles. Yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't phenomenal. I mean, I, I think I said this before. The Han Solo movie is a testament to a a a person, uh, Ron Howard, his ability to 
take something that is not one thing and mm. make it into another thing. Like, it's not a good movie. It's fine. But the fact that it crossed the finish line in a complete sense in a way that the studio, like, w- it was like with the blessing of whatever vision they had, even though like 70% of it was shot in a different vision, yeah. is amazing i'm so fascinated i i think there should be i'm not sure why there isn't a, a release the lord and millicott of the han solo movie uh campaign i'm, I'm sure it, the reason being it doesn't exist yeah but and i think people don't care people i don't think care. that's the interesting thing about these star wars stories yeah people don't care like <laughs> there's a hype for a star wars movie but they've kind of ran that into the ground a bit yeah um so mandalorian's picking up the pieces we'll see how it goes uh, i would be i would definitely be curious to see what happened there of course there's also the lego movie which mm-hmm. they directed um and and wrote the Into the Spider-Verse film as well. Um, and uh, produced uh, one of my favorite shows, the Will Forte show, The Last Man on Earth, which I absolutely love. Um, so I was very curious about uh, what these two would bring. But uh, again, noting that they didn't write or direct this, just produced it. And I guess that does lead into an interesting question about, you know, which I guess um, is somewhat answered by the the Han Solo uh, experience, is what, what, what does a producer bring to a film other than... Than bringing the film to the screen and certainly there are cases that uh, we can talk about um, you know for example uh, Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson a certain uh, aesthetic and type of film that those two people will produce mm-hmm. um, and uh, oh I'm thinking about the producer of The Godfather the uh, the, the kid always stays in the picture um, I'm going blank on his name oh. right now I'll Google in a second um, but you know uh, I'm very curious uh, I guess in the sort of auteur theory of filmmaking uh, how do we define the role of the producer because I feel again for the Mitchells versus the machines uh, Lord and Miller was the draw card for me yeah have you here's a question Sheer, because I, I, I'm going to make my statement after this I, I don't know even from a professional standpoint have you produced things or have you just directed written edited I have produced and I the say things that just I've, I don't mean yeah yeah, yeah. Like, I've produced the things I've written and directed have I produced other people's work in a meaningful way. No, I don't. I, I wouldn't say I have. Okay, well, I'm not, I'm not going to put a meaningful way on mine, but I, I did for uh, a few years b- produce over at Viacom yeah. uh, after I jumped out of the editing game. And it's so interesting to me, and you've seen this too, this isn't a secret, I, I'm not about to impart some, some dark Viacom production wizardry that you don't already know, um, but like the style of what a producer does on television or in film or anything is one of the most, I think, varied of the titles in entertainment production. Mm -hmm. Like, what they actually do is kind of dependent on the style in which they've molded their career, it feels like. Hmm. Sometimes, like... Sometimes a producer's just getting the physical thing across the door and leaning on the director like that's their vision it's the 100% like let them do whatever and I will make the I will move the mountains to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Other times producers and executive producers yeah they get their say. Like yeah, yep, director, we hired you to do this thing. Oh, you know what though? I really feel like Chewie and Han should meet in a mud pit. Yeah. Um, so let's do that then. And it's fine, right? Just go direct that thing. Like, there's different ways that these things happen. Yeah. Um, but I will say, I mean, I don't know this particular film, how it was done. It, this felt like one of their films. Well, it felt like a, a film that was influenced by their style, right? Like, yeah. 
I, I noticed them in it, even though there were parts that were very distinct from what they normally do. I think there's a distinction between producers who are, you know, producer producers in the sort of David O. Selznick kind of, uh, you know, frame of reference for the word there, mm -hmm. which is that their their job or their creative input is that they instigate the project and make the choices that yep. they, they, they give space to the creative choices that will be made on the film as well as influence those choices. Um, probably the most famous producer in the world right now is Kevin Feige who uh you know yeah. is is uh essentially show running the biggest television show on the planet at this point and you know uh influencing a lot of the creative decisions that are being made. And there's a great article this this week that's getting uh, a lot of uh, viral play on Twitter about uh, Feige and his choice for Chloe Zhao um, uh, for Nomadland. Which reminds me, by the way, at the end of this episode, we will do a quick conversation, a uh, quick wrap-up uh, of the Oscars, which I uh, we should have done a little yes. earlier, but we will do it yes. at the end of this conversation. Mm -hmm. Um and then I think there's also that unusual case where uh, producers can uh, are also directors or writers themselves and therefore um, have either uh, a creative brand that they're working towards or um, will inf who, whose reputation allows them to get a project made. So, yep. for example, Steven Spielberg is the is a very prolific producer um, with DreamWorks and Amblin, um, and maybe one of the biggest uh, sets of films that he has had the um, had his name attached to is the Transformers franchise, which is a Jerry Bruckheimer produced. Um, oh no, no, it's not Jerry Bruckheimer. Michael Bay directed, directed. but Steven Spielberg produced. Um, Did he do all of, of them? I believe his name is attached to all of them. So in some cases, he will influence the first one, and then he's just collecting a paycheck yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. on the remaining ones. Um, but definitely, I, I believe the idea to make the film, the first Transformers film, a relationship story between a boy and his car may have come from Spielberg, or at least been influenced by Spielberg, who has made those types of movies before. Well, yeah, I mean, to, to choose that thread line, that was a thread line yeah. in the cartoon as well. So it's yeah. not like that was a new thing. But well, it is a very I, I'm saying Spielberg making thing. the movie really yeah. anchored around that, yep. um, you know, uh, was probably, well, in some cases, you know, you could argue is, is a Spielberg kind of decision. However, it is difficult to kind of exactly quantify because the relation, it's not a one-to-one -one relationship like the writer is writing the words that appear mm -hmm. on screen. The director is making the choices of, of how those words get represented on screen. The producer is a little bit more nebulous in that they are uh, essentially the puppet master behind all of this. And my... my uh, you know, as a director myself, I, I've always said the whenever anyone asks what the producer does and I, I say, well, hey, did you see the film up on screen? And they say, yes. And I say, well, that's what the producer does is it brings it ensures that the film is up on screen uh, when you turn it on or decide to pay to go watch it. Mm -hmm. um, but obviously it's it is it is a lot more than that. Um, and and again. Uh, Lord and Miller were, uh, a as a brand, synonymous with this type of content, was the reason I was excited about this. I watched the first few minutes of the first trailer, I believe, which um, which they... Uh, so the way I knew about this was that I followed them on Twitter. <laughs> they okay. posted uh, the, the trailer on Twitter. I was like, cool, a Lord and Miller joint. Um, and then uh, I watched the first few minutes, and it was... Uh, and as far as I knew, it was like, it was something to do with a family who is um, involved with technology and getting sick of it, and something happens and i was like that's enough for me i'm in um by the way just as a little side note i decided to read this buzzfeed article about uh lord and miller and how they came to be in hollywood and this okay. is one of the most sort of 
not jaw dropping, but just like a little bit like stuffed me dead in my tracks kind of moments when you read an article about how two people got their break in the industry. Um, Lord and Miller both met at Dartmouth College, uh, where they both worked uh, for the student newspaper. And Miller uh, was writing his own comic strip for the student newspaper. Uh, and this is the article from BuzzFeed, which, which says, Miller's comic strip also turned out to be the catalyst for the duo's first big break in Hollywood. A stroke of like so outrageously fortuitous that Miller still quite, quite believe it really happened. In his senior year... Dartmouth Life, the student newspaper, a tabloid-sized alumni magazine, or as Miller puts it, alumni propaganda, published a cover profile about Miller and his strip, greatly elevating Miller's accomplishments in the process. The article says stuff like, at his internship at Industrial Light and Magic, he helped design the dinosaurs for the upcoming Star Wars prequels, which is wrong for a lot of reasons, <laughs> uh, says Lord with a laugh. He got coffee for the guy who made the not-dinosaur. Um Unbeknownst to Lord and Miller, they were attending Dartmouth with Eric Eisner, the son of Walt Disney Company's then-chief, Michael Eisner, one of the most powerful executives in Hollywood. Apparently, says Miller, his eyebrows still cocked in suspicion, Michael Eisner, the head of Disney, saw the article published in a student newspaper that his son happened to go to, passed it on to someone, who passed it on to someone, who passed it on to someone, who ended up passing it on to Barry Bloomberg, who's the head of Disney's television animation section. And this is, Bloomberg confirms this is exactly how it happened. I love this. And Bloomberg called Miller in his off-campus apartment and offered to fly him out to Los Angeles for a meeting. Which Miller turned down unless Lord could attend and said that they would he was busy with midterms and would only attend later in the summer when they were both planning to move to uh, to Los Angeles. And so Miller Lord and Miller's entire career is 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 based upon this one article written in the student newspaper exaggerating their achievements, which happened to be read by the son of the head of the Walt Disney Company. Yeah, listen, that's, uh, aspiring filmmakers, take note. That's how you do it. Um, I don't think there's another path uh, as clean. That makes sense. No, I, I, re- I realize now I should have been paying more attention in, high, in college. You know how when we look at our resumes and we're like, oh, like, should we kind of put this, like, we did do this, but we don't want to make it seem too overblown or like, you know, whatever. Like, I don't want to be caught in a lie. And it's not like it's not like Lord or Miller or Miller lied. No, it's no, just that's something a, not something at all. It's just like it's an amazing turn of sequence. Someone wrote it about them. Yeah. So it's like or about him. So like, yeah, uh, I just think it's hilarious. I, I mean, look, that, I'll, I'll go on the record right now, and I'm not sure why I haven't received credit for this, but I was an extra uh, in the movie Freddy Got Fingered. So I think that counts for something. Yeah. Right. Uh, it sure does. And <laughs> I, um, Man, what's what's a what's a pseudo lie about my career? Um, <laughs> Mine's not a lie. I wasn't extra oh, in that movie. Uh, I worked with Taylor Swift at the EMAs. So did I. I filmed. Uh, I I directed her in a little scene. I uh, yeah, I'm not sure I, why she didn't call people and say, "Oh my God, who was that guy who came in for five minutes?" And I met her and had a brief conversation with her uh, backstage. Yeah. Why uh, Why aren't we the next Lord and Miller right now? I don't know. Maybe we have to write about how we <laughs> met Taylor Swift, and then Taylor Swift will read it. Wait, how would this connect? I once tried uh, to impress my niece about the fact that I'd met Taylor Swift, and and she was and my niece who was who was much younger was like, oh, that's cool, and didn't. I was like, I was I was really like got, like trying to drop the name at that point. Well, and she didn't care. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Uh, I will say. Uh, 
uh, you know what I love about meeting celebrities? They're either an incredible presence yeah. or or sort of like not. Yeah. And Taylor was. Yeah, she was lovely. Uh, it was it was just one of those things where you're like, oh shit, you're so important, and I can like <laughs> I can feel it emanating off of you. Um, anywho, anyway. Could so you yeah, tell well, us give us a job, Taylor Swift. That's what, that's what we're trying <laughs> yeah, to say. Yeah, Taylor Swift. What the hell? Yeah. Uh, we know you listen to the podcast. Um, could you tell us what the Mitchells versus the Machines was actually about? If if my initial impression was incorrect. Sure, I, I don't think it terribly was. Uh, IMDb defines it as a quirky, dysfunctional family's road trip is upended when they find themselves in the middle of the robot apocalypse and suddenly become humanity's unlikeliest last hope. Unlikeliest. What a what a fun little I, I, when, it, when, I, when you read it, it almost looks like ukulele, uh, but it's not. It's unlikeliest. Um, that's pretty accurate. I Matt, think that's you worked in unknowing about anything other than my enthusiasm for the names Lord and Miller. Oh, and mine once I knew they were involved. Yeah, yeah but yeah, maybe I feel like bad. I shouldn't have told you that at all. I would have been curious just to see you just walk in completely blind. That would have been fun. Uh, um, what did you think? Of the uh, Mitchells versus the Machines. Overall, I thought it was delightful. Um, the so okay, here's here's a here's a backhanded compliment okay. I think toward the film. Um, so from the from the get go, you kind of get the vibe that this thing is doing from the Columbia logo, oh, which was just lovely, which was awesome. Yeah, uh, it like dances and has all this sort of like uh, I don't even know what to describe that art style as. Like it's got this um, hand drawn sort of animation to it. Like hand drawn, but like almost like fever dreamish sort of like uh, collage. Well, we we call it uh, collage. You know, like okay. it's just kind of like sketching, pencils, doodling, but yeah. also like for the internet age. But yeah. also like it, it, you know, and I'll I'll sort of touch on that in a bit because it's sort of interesting whenever films try to do like internet culture but can't get the rights to any of the internet culture stuff. Mm -hmm. I just always find that exercise interesting. So you know you know like what you're getting right off the bat. Um and then afterward we kind of cut to a midpoint in the movie where they're kind of just getting a voiceover and describing what's going on. They're in the car, the family is and they're they're running away from robots and I gotta and say, this is one of my most hated tropes in movies these days. I disliked this intently. Yeah, I was I, watching I, it. The pacing of it felt so off. The the moments when like it would pause for for like I, I the, just hate this. Now let me wind back and tell you how I got here. Kind of, I just I can't. Yep, I, I just I can't if there's it. anything more tired than that. <laughs> uh, so like while I was liking the look and the feel of what was going on, the the, the that trope didn't like, and when that trope did the things it does, like car goes off a jump. Freeze, and it's supposed to have a line of dialogue. I felt like all of the dialogue came like a second too late. Like you sat in silence like two or three times, and I was like, "Is this trying to off-put my sense of timing? Hmm. Like I don't understand what's happening." And then by the time we rewind and get to the family, and like sort of like, because at that point they just look like a wacky family in a car running from robots. I don't care. Mm -hmm. Like and and then once you start to get to know the Mitchells and their their sort of uh, different family dynamics, uh, it it legit it like it it felt really really good. It had a mm -hmm. lot of like what I would call legit laughs. Mm -hmm. Like I laughed out loud alone in my apartment, <laughs> um, which is always good. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was just a really good time. Nice little emotional ending. Uh, you know, a little bit saccharine, of course, but that's what you kind of get with these things. This is a film made for children and adults. So I feel like this. It's your your um, uh, your praise is tepid. 
No, no, no. I had a really great time. The, I, I, this is this is what I want to say, and I, I, I'm glad that my a lot of my negatives came at that beginning moment because it had nowhere to go but up. Mm-hmm. Like I did not like the beginning of this movie. I thought I was going to not like this movie, hmm. and then it really, really, really grew on me. Right. Um, yeah. What about you? How did you How did you sort of feel? I kind of hate doing episodes like this, um, where I just have nothing but praise for this movie. Really? I, I really, I really just have nothing but, but, but uh, a sense of wonder and joy and happiness about what it is I experienced this morning when I, I got up early before work to watch this movie, uh, because it was the only time I could do it, and it was released today. Um, but on the Netflix the, uh, on Netflix, just the sense of joy at watching something that was so delightfully happy and um, without a sense of weightiness to itself mm-hmm. and with a real genuine pleasure both in the making, in, in the seemingly, in the construction of the film and in the way that it engages with its audience. It, it, it what's, what's funny about this movie is that, and this, you know, again, um, using Lord and Miller as the touch point here is that I think what they're really good at is taking existing expected franchises and flipping them and reverting them into their own world. So, you know, Spider-Verse is an expected franchise and then flipping it into sort of the Phil Lord and Miller universe, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, 21, 22 Jump Street. You know, they all feel uniquely their world. Even Lego to a point. Yeah, Lego as well. Existing franchise. There's not a narrative to it, but they went into that world and gave it one. Yeah, exactly. That feels uniquely theirs. And a lot of this film felt like it was taking or cribbing pieces from other movies that were all very familiar. You know, um, uh, the, the things that I felt having only watched this morning was this was sort of a variation of National Lampoon's Vacation uh, mixed with Be Kind, Rewind, and Me and Earl and the Dying Girl, and a little bit of Shaun of the Dead, um, and some sort of post-apocalyptic, technology, you know, Westworld-esque sort of story. All <laughs> the beats are familiar. Everything about this is familiar. Yet, somehow, with all of those familiar beats, it turns it into both a unique and delightful experience by moving at such a zapping pace. You know, like they the 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 sort of art style that you described before, where basically the film is rendered in CG, so it's it's a computer generated three D image. But then there's doodling all over the image, which reflects the main character Katie's sort of approach and view of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, where she takes and remixes um, basically things that she finds and, you know, like adds filters to them, what have you. And I think I, I haven't quite seen a film that seemed to understand the, the language of the Internet as well as this does. Like, I think this film really gets how we watch and consume things on the internet and puts those into play in the, in, through the course of this movie. And I, I haven't quite, exp- I, I think there's a, there's an, op- that's a really tricky thing because I think there's a, a real tendency there to like have that, uh, how you doing fellow kids kind of feel to it. But this feels authentically of the internet age in terms of so- both. Both the way it jumps around in time, both the way it visually uh, captures details, um, it feels very much well understood. So it, it, 
No. You disagree. Okay. <clears throat> yeah. So, okay. Here's what I think it does really well. Okay. It takes what the sensibilities of what you and I, uh, very young men, <laughs> feel like the internet is mm-hmm. and presents that. And the reason I say that is, uh, again, uh, I, I uh, chat with a lot of people in their 20s these days through extra credits and through mm-hmm. our Discord and a bunch of other stuff. And this is, of course, me you know, dating myself age-wise, but like the way that they interact with the internet uh, is different than the way I interact with the internet. Mm-hmm. And the colloquialisms and the and the even the um the 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 um what's the term I'm looking for? Just sort of like the shorthand, right? Mm-hmm. The jargon. And this movie feels like it like and, I, and here's the thing. You and I share, I would argue, for for our demographic, we're pretty dang internet savvy on our own. But I feel like there's <laughs> damn a, right, buddy. There's there's a difference. <laughs> there's a difference in what the sort of vibe or the feeling is. And this feels like a 40-something's idea of what a 20-something feels like the internet is hmm. as opposed to what I actually think it is. And again, this is me judging it from outside of that because I'm not that. I would love – email us in, onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. My, my statement is not a, a short. I could be wrong on this. This was just a vibe I got. It it was being respectful of this thing, but it did feel like through the lens of middle-aged dudes. Huh. That's like, interesting. It, what, what makes you say – like I, I, when I, you know, scroll through TikTok, for example, or Instagram Reels or something like that. Yeah. This is the, the not only the sense of humor, but also the visual aesthetic of internet culture so, that I so, see. So the interesting thing is, th- whenever this movie did a thing, either if it was Katie's films or some sort of internet thing like the baboon screaming or like whatever. It all felt like a bizarro world version of those things. Mm-hmm. And there's something I, I can't even equate this. There might even be a word for this. The internet and the memeability of things on the internet and the energy of the weirdness of things that people can do, mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever actually seen portrayed in that purest form in in a cinematic language, like mm-hmm. in a movie, because I think it's it it might be impossible because there's just something that the, the the rawness of of these things is something that most likely will not fit into a motion picture. There's mm. always going to be rough edges sanded down, which again is fine. You need to make when you're making a movie, you need to make a cohesive piece, right? Yeah. Um, so like every time they did something like this, like I I never felt connected to it. It felt like a forty something's interpretation of what they see on the internet. Hmm. Like and and that's not to say that what they're seeing is wrong, but the the the, the rawness of it. Like even like what I loved about the look of this film was again, it's sort of a, a very lightly cell shaded three D animation mm-hmm. to kind of give you a little bit of a of a mixer point between that and the flat two D like drawing sprites that come up. Mm-hmm. Um and it was it was almost like it, it's funny, it's almost like a, a rainbow flavored punk rock aesthetic, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's kind of I don't know how else you'd call it. Like it's like stickers almost like yeah. of, of a vibe. And uh, whenever I was watching any of Katie's stuff, like it just felt like the diet soda version of what the internet is, which again hmm. is great, tastes great, less filling, right. but didn't feel like uh, tr- like 
really true to it for some reason. Could we could we maybe get uh, get a working definition of what we think the aesthetic of um, social media visuals are? Um, because in my and, mind, and, and that's the thing. You know what it is? Oh, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I think I just got a, I got a point. Uh, the, that's the thing. I don't think there is one. No, and there's, this there's movie, not a single one. And this movie one, but, stuck with one, but which if, made but if the we whole could, thing. If we could identify kind of a, either a common trait or some sort of uniform way to describe the thing that we're talking about, which is what aesthetic does it lend itself towards and does it uh, does it work? Fast and, brain worm chaos. <laughs> brain worm chaos. No, fast, so, fast brain I th- worm chaos. I think chaos. You're, you're talking about the not only the memeability of the way in which images and symbols get reinterpreted into oddities, right? So the a great example is the Nyan is it the Nyan cat, you know, which is yep. like a, a sort of nonsense symbol that has now become that means a lot of things now. Mm-hmm. Um the worst tenants of this are, you know, sort of uh the Pippi frog uh for the QAnon sect or sure. 4chan, you know, like the way in which an absurd meme becomes uh remixed and re ratified. I think for me the 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 visual aesthetic of the social media age as we know and understand it now has to do with both um, uh, a functional ability to take and reinterpret moments mm-hmm. and and to make collages or make or make art from other art right like it's yep. that ability to to take media re re reformat it reinstate it and posit it to get posit yeah. it into something new and also uh ascribe meaning to something uh through repeated motifs so the, the baboon yeah. laugh is a really good example here which is that his face reminds you of a baboon laugh uh rather than like alluding to it as you would in like literature that his face allude you know looked like a baboon laugh we simply juxtapose those two things right next to each other here's his face here's a baboon laugh here's his face here's a baboon laugh here's his face here's a baboon laugh cut, cut to the end of the movie when um pal is dying Here's her face. Here's a bad yes. laugh. Here's a lot of face. great callbacks. Yeah. Everything that's set up as a joke in this movie has sort of a payoff later on. Yeah. Uh, my favorite of which, slight spoiler alert, is the dog uh, is yeah. so fat and round that the robots can't tell if it's a dog, pig, or loaf of bread. Yeah. And they use that as a shield to cut through the robots because they can't target it. Yeah. Like, th- and, it's so fun. And I think I think that also speaks to another way, which is that the in in social media. Um, ideas will permutate through through people very rapidly, right? Like so. Um, I, I mean, I this is this is dating me, but I remember one of the things, uh, one of the early sort of memifications of what some something someone had written was, uh, I believe it was on Ain't It Cool News. So this is really going back a while here. Oh, <laughs> uh, So this is this is dating, but this is an early example that, and it's the only one that comes to mind. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of uh, other examples of this right now. Um, but um, someone described um, Kieran Knightley as a sexy tomboy beanpole, which was this, the weirdest turn of phrase- That's very strange. To use. But basically, once that had been done- People started using that phrase to describe everybody on the internet. You know, it was a sexy tomboy peen, uh, beanpole for every human being on the internet from that point on for about huh. a year solid. Um, which is that sort of meme effect, uh, I guess is what I'm saying, which is that something 
becomes popularized through uh, through either a misinterpretation of what it is, or or a, a willingly knowing misinterpretation of what it is, and then repeated over and over again. I think Pepe, uh, there's a documentary about uh, the Pepe frog um, in the same way, which is that this artist. Uh, you know, like drawings of the Pippi Frog suddenly became part of the white nationalist movement. Yep. Um, and and I, I, I think there's something to that in the way that uh, people communicate on the internet and take images and symbols and repurpose them. So, you know, a couple examples in this film are dog, pig, loaf of bread, which gets spread out through all the characters talking about it. And, it, you know, like the way it's represented in the film is that, you know, that we see the algorithm of them trying to compare the two and it becomes a, it becomes a running gag. Yeah. The, the baboon laugh, I think, is a similar one as well. Well, um, so, so this is where I think... So, and and I, I guess that's where it kind of just works for me because that feels authentic to the experience. So I think it feels authentic to the experience of experiencing a meme, mm-hmm. but visually... It takes me out of it because of the way the way that again this and I can't I can't quantify it. I think that's the issue. Yeah. This film has a art direction. It has an aesthetic. And everything that it does, 95, 99% of it fits into that aesthetic. So you're taking the internet, which literally has like I would never even say that there is an internet aesthetic. It's just it's just like there's so many different things that we look at. Even if you just look at, let's even just take the, the, the cross section of memes. The only thing that memes have in common is there's words on them. And actually, that's not even true all the time. No. So like, but it could be any image, right? So you take something like that and you have to, bo- which is a daunting task what I'm about to describe. You boil it down into an art direction for a film. Mm-hmm. And inherently, because the internet is such beautiful, terrible chaos, it's always going to feel like a Disney ride of the internet once it's put into an art direction, especially one as distinct and joyful as this. There's nothing wrong with it, but I did find it like sort of take me out of the, I wasn't able to like sort of put myself in that vibe with it. And I do think it does feel ever so slightly dated, even even though it pokes fun at its own datedness, like the, the what's it called? The, um, the song, the Numa Numa song, right? Right, right. So that's the song that um, uh, the father, uh, Rick and Katie, sort of like danced to when Katie was a little kid back in 2003 when that song was more prevalent in the internet meme space, right? Right. And then like that's sort of like their come together moment here. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's referencing that it's old, yeah. but it's still making that an important touch point as opposed to something that's sort of like current with Katie's vibe. Well, it, because, like, because, and I, I, I think the reason why that works is that uh, the father is ascribing to a certain to nostalgia. A hundred percent. But, but like in that act from a storytelling perspective, I think it works for the characters and their development. But as a viewer watching it, I hear Numa Numa, and I'm like, wow, this is old. Yeah. Like, it is uh, old. but like, especially. But but it's it's a movie that's supposed to be and presenting itself as like feeling very current, even though the references tend to be a little bit backward. But but in that scene, they, they're playing a clip from and they, they actually date it in the I, film. I as well. understand that. It doesn't change the feeling of what I got. Like uh. you there's and again, it, it's funny because like personally I think I wouldn't even be able to have the quote I understood that reference moment reference moment for whatever the equivalent of Numa Numa is right now. It's right. probably a, a certain song on TikTok that's being used and clipped or something oh, that no. I'm just not privy oh, to. Oh no. 
Um, no. Oh that's, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. But 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 the thing is, but this I get, is I understand. I understand in the movie why it's there. Yeah. But the feeling it gave me was this was written by someone older. Which, right. it, which is fine. Which 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 I agree with. It was written by someone older, and it yeah. is uh, about uh, a more nostalgic approach to... Like, at the core of this film, uh, I think that was another thing that actually struck me about this, is that uh, what the reason why this film works is that despite the complexity of our communications, we as human beings aspire to very simple things. Mm-hmm. And this at the core of this film is a very simple idea, which is... Uh, which actually struck a real chord with me in terms of like it actually brought a tear to my eye but it's so simple which is finding your place and finding your people and and knowing that your family can you know like are there a hundred percent it's so simple it's so cliche so tried out but done so authentically here i think i just might have placed where my minor hiccup on it again and please i i I, i'm just talking about my my minor gripes because otherwise i'd just be keep talking about all the funny things that I liked about it, right. which I can do later too. But um, I think I kind of figured something out. This movie posits and, and positions Katie as sort of the main character, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's what it feels like to me, even though Rick is probably the the next sort of supporting cast member in The, the Father. Um, it's, it's from Katie's perspective, mm-hmm. but it feels like Rick's internet world. Or Rick's view of what the internet is, which is that is right. But even through the lens of Katie, even though we're supposed to be seeing it through Katie's lens, it, it there's there's a weird there's a weird disconnect for me there. Again, yeah. it I, I would like to st- stress again, this does not mean I did not like the movie. Right, I really enjoyed a lot of the movie. All of the things you hear you just said about the sort of the dynamic of what humans want and the value of finding sort of your your uh, your people that you connect with and bond with, and then knowing that your family has your back and sort of like understanding where you come from to where you go. Like that's it's all there and and really really prevalent and a funny funny ride. I just had these moments where it—it's it, it, funny that you called out like you didn't get the "Hello, fellow young people" vibe. Where I was like, "This is good," but I still see Steve Buscemi holding that skateboard every once right, in a while. Right. Uh, I want to um, because because it, I, I actually like this idea that we're trying to come to a working definition of something that is almost impossible to define. Let's do it. Let's keep going. Um, but but uh, I had recalled this uh, this the where the origin of the word the uh, the etymology of the word um, meme had come from, and it's oh. it's actually from Richard Dawkins, uh, you know. Uh, author of The God Delusion and uh, famous atheist, um, which is how I know him. Uh, one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, apparently. And occasionally wow. not the not the uh, best person to reference in terms of uh, problematic uh, elements to his story. But Richard Dawkins coined the word meme in his 1976 best bestseller, The Selfish Gene, the word which is ascribed to an idea, behavior, or style that spreads from person to person within a culture and has been reappropriated, uh, reappropriated by the internet with grumpy cats, socially awkward penguin, overly attached girlfriend, spreading virally, leaping from IP address to IP address. There's also a book I read many years ago. Um, uh, I think it was called Hyperlink and Hypermedia, um, which which was one of the first books, I'll, I'll have to look up the author of that, um, uh, which was one of the first books that that connected me to you know because again you you have to describe the fact that I'm older we're both older mm-hmm. uh, and like when I wrote research papers at university I would have to physically go to the library and look up the Dewey Decimal System and then you know read something off a shelf and then if it you know make notes on it and 
um, go find the other references if I needed to. What so an archaic world. Yeah, I know. I mean, to the point where I think when I was in college, I didn't own a laptop. I would have to use computers at the library. Anyway, the this book, Hyperlink and Hypermedia, I, uh, I think it was Manuel Delanda, I think is the name of the author. I'll have to look it up. Um, opened me to the idea that the way literature communications were changing was through the advent of the hyperlink. So... Uh, whereas I would have to, you know, look up a book, read it, find the reference, you know, like if a, if a reference sparked an interest in me personally, I would then have to go and search out that reference and then read the corresponding elements and find, you know, make that, that definition. The hyperlink made a direct one-to-one connection between those two elements Mm -hmm. and then spit up the way in which we connected materials, um, uh, through in both an intellectual and social way, we were able to connect ideas very, very quickly. And I think there's a part of that which has led to a the fund foundational language of the internet. You know, the hyperlink is a prevalent form of the internet, and the way in which we jump from an image of the laughing baboon to you know Rick Mitchell's face, which is that we are we now connect those two in a sort of in a more in a dynamic way. That's not to say that that kind of visual language in cinema didn't exist before, but I think it's something fairly profound to the way in which we use social media now, the way in which we read an article quickly and share it quickly based upon its virality or the, or, you know, the, the social media side of it. And I think all of that is to say, you're you're right in that this film is about two opposing ideas. One is Rick's Rick's um, uh, annoyance at the at the way in which technology pervades his life. As we learn in his backstory, what he really loves is nature, and you know there's that sort of touching thing, which is that he built a house uh, for the family, and then they had to leave it, and it was the easiest yep. thing to do because of his daughter. But his daughter now lives in a world in which she is hyper connected, you know, in that social media way. She even when they are even when she is threatened with not having the orientation experience, there was a mixer, she is still engaging with the people uh, at her university that she would have ordinarily been with anyway. She's still making things and talking to them, mm-hmm. and they are see- seeing her experiences as she travels through the wilderness. And I think there's this little like, hit to hit about it. But what's sweet about the movie is that it is not an outright rejection of the value of technology. Mm-hmm. It is at one stage, in one part, a kind of, um, you know, apocalyptic uh, look at how technology awry in the sort of way science fiction can do. But at the same time, it's also understanding that for younger kids and younger people, um, technology is the language that they live and exist and yeah. work with. And it is mm-hmm. the way in which she creates art. Um, and so I think there's a there's a nice tension about that that is like surprisingly sweet and understanding. Yeah, it, it, this movie does a really nice knife's edge balance of um, not demonizing one view or another, mm. just sort of showing characters looking at them from the op- the opposing points of view, and then showing sort of the pros and cons of both. If you're if you really like sort of like high tech versus low tech, I guess I'll just sort of call it. Yeah. Um, the, the Henry David Thoreau versus the the Richard Dawkins. I guess. Sure, yeah, I guess. Like, uh, and you know, it it also shows the bad sides of it. It shows how tech illiteracy can slow you down. It shows when you put too much trust in. I mean, what are the what are the quotes I was going to do? Who, who would have thought a tech company wouldn't have our best interest at heart? Mm. Like, it, it it takes you know 
you know, the dig at at social media companies. Of course, Eric Andre's character. Um, I forget what the character's name is. But he, uh, he has a sort of Mark, not quite Mark a, Bowman. Yeah, not quite an Elon Musk, but maybe the uh, the the Jack Dorsey sort of vibe to him. I don't know. Something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and of course, Olivia Coleman as the voice of Pal, the, <laughs> yeah. the personal assistant that sort of runs amok and, and takes over the world with an army of robots. I mean, the voice acting cast of this is phenomenal. I mean, yeah, Abby. Two time. Is she a two time Academy Award winner? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Abby Jacobson from Broad City was great as Katie. Danny McBride, you know, obviously good as Rick. Maya Rudolph as Linda. And Michelle uh, Rianda as Aaron, or Michael, excuse me. Um, like, there's a lot of there's a lot of different, like, I don't know. This is one of those movies where I didn't know. Well, other than Danny McBride, yeah. I didn't know whose voice was whose like mm. until afterward. I was just like, oh, these are really good. And I like I actually lived in the characters. It wasn't yeah. like it's not when you hear like Justin Timberlake as a troll and you're yeah. like, thanks. Yeah. Like it, I was like, oh, this is Katie. This is Rick. This is Linda. Yeah. Side note, Linda <laughs> at the end of the movie uh, yeah. going full Kill Bill. See, here's the other thing, too. Yeah, I it, love it references that Kill Bill. You know, like, I know. But again. The reference is to our demographic, not Katie's demographic. I, I think you're making a fair point that the that the that the the references do feel like they come from at least five to ten years ago. Yes, uh, but I don't fault the film for that, and I also think that they wouldn't. The way in which the references are deployed still feel current and relevant. I would argue that they did those re- they they chose to use older references to not alienate older audiences and they hmm. thought that people would that that kids would just sort of get the vibe and be like oh yeah i remember that like and not think about it like hmm. if if like that makes the most sense cuz if you say they did it and they did it in like a 2020 uh meme culture and they hmm. just did that stuff hmm. right parents would be like what the fuck is this hmm. like but but if you'd use older internet culture in it 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 does make a bridge point, but I, I I think it was the smartest choice to do. Yeah, I think there is a bit of a disconnect based on it feeling not like a a, a hmm. smidge of hello fellow young people. I also I I mean I think you may be right in that it is the reference of the age of the people who worked on the film. Yes, yep. And but I don't think there's like a. Uh, There's nothing wrong with that, yeah. but it was a moment that that bucked me ever so slightly before the rest of this movie just lulled me back into gently enjoying the entirety of it. Like again, if 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 uh, it's not a huge deal, I just found it interesting. Uh, um, I, yeah. I actually look because because this question of like the pervasiveness of technology in our lives has been not troubling me, but making me. It's particularly in the year of 2020 and 2021, uh, the year of our Lord and Savior. Same year, same year. uh, uh, The year of our Lord, COVID-19. I think about the way in which technology has made uh, an impact in our lives in the last couple of years. And it may also be because I'm older. Um, But I think about, I I do think about like what what would have happened if COVID uh, had come about in the year 2000 or in 1990 or something like that. And what role technology would have played in our lives then or how would the technology have formed around it? Because I think one thing that technology has done in the last year, ha- which it, it, it has done two things, which is that it has socially connected us connected us when we are not able to be physically connected, mm-hmm. but is also socially isolating, uh, which is that you fall into rabbit holes. And I found this, um, this Pew Research Center um, question... Um, uh, qu- uh, qu- questionnaire that they'd been sent out uh, where the Pew Research Center and the Lawn University um, 
queried technology experts, scholars, and health specialists on this question. Over the next decade, and this, this was published in 2018, by, uh, by the way, over the next decade, how will changes in digital life impact people's overall well-being physically and mentally? And Robert Wright, the professor of political science at Stanford University, said, if the baseline for making a projection about the next today is the current level of benefit harm of digital life, then I'm willing to express a confident judgment that the next decade will bring a net harm to people's well-being. 100%. The, the massive and undeniable benefits of digital life, access to knowledge and culture, have been mostly realized. The harms have begun to come into view just over the past few years, and the trend line is moving consistently in a negative direction. I am mainly worried about corporate and governmental power to surveil users, a tendent loss of privacy and security, about the degraded public sphere and its new corporate owners that care not much for sustaining demographic um, democratic governance. And then there are the worries about AI, artificial intelligence, and the technological displacement of labor. And finally, and I think this is the one that like really I thought about in the last year, <laughs> is the addictive technologies that have captured the attention and mind space of the youngest generation. All in all, digital life is now threatening our psychological, economic, and political well-being. At the same time, while I fundamentally, the pessimistic side of me and the side of me that stays up late scrolling reddit and twitter and instagram and tiktok and all those things and feeling shittier after doing it Mm -hmm. i still also acknowledge that we are in a place where this is the way in which we communicate now and this is the way in which our, our brain functions are changing according to the way in which we use social media and I think there's a beautiful part to this movie, uh, to the Mitchells versus the Machine, which is the acknowledgement of the way in which Katie uses technology to create and and the way in which her creations kind of shape her worldview. You know, like she is the storyteller and she 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 strings together these narratives on how to to achieve this. And the film is kind of knowingly gentle about the stakes of its own story. You know, like it, it doesn't feel like it's a life and death scenario. It feels like it's a fun storyline to send these characters through, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, they're going to send the entire human population into the cold depths of space, but... But but it doesn't feel like it's a life or death scenario. Like, it doesn't feel like the film is moody and gloomy about it. It feels like a fun adventure. The weightiness is not on the life and death plot. The weightiness is on fam- familial bonds and how people interact with technology. That's where yeah. that's where it's at. It's not that it's not there. It's just what the film shows us as what it is interested in uh, basically exploring mm. are those things, not shooting people out to freeze to death <laughs> in the cold depths and, of the and, unknown void. And it comes down to that like simplicity. The, the thing that really touched me about this movie is Katie finding her people. You know, like this idea that she is going to be around, uh, you know, what she really wants is to be around people who think like she does, who make the things that she does. And then there's the sadness in realizing her father is not that person, but the the sort of the journey of the movie, uh, you know, to, to the sort of the sweet ending of him friending her on YouTube uh, by mail um, is that is a sort of acknowledgement that that um he needs to come to figure out how she communicates and she needs to have an understanding of him. And it's those simple things that make it, you know, like, I was like, well, that's universal. And and I think the thing about, you know, COVID-19 and the way in which technology has pervaded our lives in the last year is that it's the simple things that really do mean a lot, right? Like in, you know, when we had a birthday, like someone sending me a message to say, happy birthday, how are you? Meant, you know, the fact that we couldn't do that in person doesn't matter. It's just that simple, like, oh, yeah, that was nice. You know, like that sort of like simple thing. 
there is a there is a niceness to it, but there's also a numbness to it too. Hmm. Like, and it's it's double it's double edged. Like, yeah. uh, to be honest, and maybe it's because I, uh, you know, living by myself, Zoe's staring at me very intently when I yeah. said that. Sorry, buddy. Uh, versus you living with two other people. Yeah. Uh, you have human interaction every day. Sometimes I don't uh, want it. Let me tell you. Well, yeah, but it, you know, it's a grass is greener thing. Some yeah. days I don't. Some days it's all video screens and chats and emails for me. Yeah. And um, I find it more rejuvenating to actually, you know, now we've, we're vaccinated and we're <laughs> it's getting warmer, et cetera. Like things like when we went on the bike ride <laughs> or, or uh, meeting people at the park for their birthday or something like that. Like I'm finding more value in that now, but it's, I, I honestly think it's not that one side is better than the other. It's that I've been cooped up for uh you know a year and some change like everyone else has and now things are starting to move in a different direction i want something different actually it was funny jamie and i were just talking and we were both like our summers are slowly filling up right That's and, great. and which which is great but we're full of dread about it right and there's there's a weird thing and i, I was trying to decode why that is and i was like oh because for a year all we've had to do at all quotes uh because we're privileged enough to do so is stay alive make sure we still have work and yeah. keep our heads down. Yeah. Right? Now, all of the social pressure that we used to be used to, we haven't done for a year. And social pressure isn't bad, by the way. I mean, like, it's great that people want to do things with us or we get to go do a thing, right? Yeah. But it's the planning and the scheduling of it that feels like because, – because the work and the survival instinct hasn't gone away, nor have we put less effort into it. But now we're adding on all of the other things that we used to do that, that now – it's not filling a void so much as piling on. So right. the whole point of this is this movie, honestly, like I said before, balances on that knife's edge very, very, very succinctly. Hmm. It it shows you the, the pros and cons of sort of both sides of this sort of like technology good-bad coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that doesn't come along often i find especially in a movie where robots are trying to take over the world <laughs> but fun robots yeah. fun robots right <laughs> um so fun goofy and, robots and again my my crit, my criticisms of it are so minor it's just more of a of a of a fascination than mm. a, a, a mark against the film yeah um the yeah. other thing yeah i mean that's really it i i don't i don't want to disparage it at all i think i i don't know how they would have done that better it's just I, I think again, right moves. Notice the chink in the armor, right? Yeah, it's it's a. I, I think to sum it up before we move on to our Oscar conversation, it's a delightful film. It is a perfect uh, Friday morning movie, weekend movie with the family. Um, I think it's got a gentle, loving spirit about it. It to me, it speaks to uh, the age in which we communicate now and the the discrepancies that happen between the older generation and the age today. And I think it's just it's got a wonderful sense of playfulness that I. I again, I do associate with Lord and Miller, even though again, this is not uh, you know it's a Lord and Miller produced film uh, as to po- as opposed to written mm-hmm. and directed by. Um, but and you know, like to say it out loud, it is a it is clearly a film that is branded for that is a that is a product of a, a certain type of 
um, tr- you know, targeted towards children uh, with a with an aim for adults. You know, much of the storyline feels like it's sort of cribbed in some way. It could have been an extended Simpsons episode or something like that. But I don't want to see any more of these. I'm like, this is great. I don't need to see any more adventures of this. Um, I think the the storytelling is wonderful and there's a really nice adventure. Let's move on and do another or do something yep. else now. But Agreed. just really wonderful uh, storytelling. I also like the fact that um, uh, uh, I believe. This is an outwardly LGBT character. At the end of the film, you know, she, they make explicit reference to that she has a that she now has a partner, and you know, is she bringing her to Thanksgiving? Uh, it, it's just a nice little detail there that I, I, you know, just appreciated and, and liked that it was not coy about it. Sure, I mean, it does. Again, the movie's not about no, that. It's not about her sexuality, but, but, but just, yeah, but it's nice that it is there, though it is funny. I, I I always go back, and again, I can't speak to this really, but I always do go back and forth on the like, oh, throw the button line in there to show. That's true. That is like, fair. That's fair. There's like, the, again, it's two sides of the coin. You could find something very, there's something very lovely about the acknowledgement of it and the nor- like how normal it is in the world that no one makes a deal about anything, but then yeah. there's also like, oh yeah, by the way, this doesn't affect literally anything, anything in, in the, the mo- story. You're, so, like, you're 100% correct. There's yeah. a bad, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like again, I, look, I I really liked this movie, and it that is coming from a lot from a, a film that honestly the first five minutes really bucked me. After that, Columbia, I loved the I, Columbia I did, thing. I, yeah, I didn't and love then, the first five minutes, but I wasn't I wasn't thrown off by it because it felt like a generic animated action movie, and I yeah. didn't care. And yeah. then it made me care. So I, I don't know. Check it out. I, I really dig it. Um, so, well, so hold on. So I know we've got another thing, but I will sort of bookend this uh, by saying this has been the only podcast about the film The Mitchells versus The Machines. But that's not all this podcast is going to be talking about. We're going to go over uh, some Academy Awards that apparently happened. Bonus. I'm just adding the effect myself. I did not watch the Academy Awards. Me the neither. Academy Awards were trending this week for a number of reasons, and I just sort of dipped in and saw what was happening. Um, we had a couple of emails asking us, you know, would we do a special episode about it? I wrote a little Twitter thread uh, about what I thought of the Academy Awards. Not to say that it matters at all what I think of it, uh, but we did appreciate that people wanted to hear our opinion yes, on it. Thank so we you. thought we should, uh, you know, we'll do a little wrap up of it. I think the first thing to sort of acknowledge is the change in format of the actual uh, awards itself. Um, I will say Steven Soderbergh has t- taken over as one of the producers of the show and acknowledged that um, that the show would look and feel different. He was like, you know, like he did one of the things that it's always infuriated me about shows about movies, which we, you and I have both worked on, which is like, they just said, we'll, we'll broadcast it in 24 frames per second. It's a little detail, but I, I noticed, and I might be one of the, like the 90, you know, the 1% or 2% of people that would actually know and care about that. But it, it added to my sense of this is a show about movies and we respect them, the, the format enough to work within it. I wonder how much of that sort of bucked people, though, because it's, even though, like, you're right, 2% of people will realize what it is, yeah. but it's kind of like that frame-blending shit on all <laughs> new TVs. Like, you know something's off, <laughs> and until you get used to it, it feels weird. I, like, I often find, though, it always works in the opposite direction, which is that you know something's off when something is playing back at 60 frames per second or if it's being frame-blended. That's when you notice it's wrong. Yes. People never, in my opinion, 
I've never had someone watch something that's in 24 frames per second and go, that's not right. Well, so let me re- let me rephrase. Yeah. The fact that it changed the frame rate this year to a show that people are used to see, like not everything, like I feel like it's the same effect, but flipped. I agree with what you're saying because every house I go to of every parent ever has yeah. like frame blending turned to 11. I'm like, how can you watch this sloshy bullshit? And they're like, what? It's TV. And I'm like, no, yeah. no, it it's not. This way. Uh, and then yeah. you turn it off and they're like, it looks stuttery. And I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> well, no. And just, just to say there was a, uh, was it director mode has been introduced into all, most televisions as a standard now or filmmaker mode, which, uh, um, uh, Christopher Nolan and PT Anderson and Martin Scorsese have really pushed for. So the film has a mode. Uh, most TVs have a mode now if you buy, if they came out in the last year, which, uh, defaults to, the original with no frame blending and no color optimization or anything. So does it, it look- read that off of a streaming service or a Blu-ray? Yeah, it does. Like- I think I think it sits. It's no. It's it's the way in which the, you know, like most TVs were defaulted to the frame blending in order to give yeah. the most sharpness to wide shots. Now there there is a mode you can activate on most screens uh, that is uh, set to optimize for the way in which a filmmaker intended it to be. No, I know, but like for instance, where's that profile stored? It's stored on the television. No, no, no. Sorry. Let me rephrase. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, the, the I'm going to watch um, an animated film from 2010 versus then I'm going to watch Birds of Prey or right. whatever. Like, wh- where where does the TV read? I know the, uh, the, the setting is on the television, but where does the TV read the data from to know exactly what the optimum thing is? Uh, I don't believe there is a metadata sta- uh, standard from the television to tell it from from the content to tell it that way, but it basically is saying you know how you would get a situation where you would put on image optimization or you know the the, yeah. the, the, the frame blending which would default on every piece of content you would see. So if you watched Mission Impossible, right, right, you right. would see it in the frame blended mode. Yep. Now there is a mode called filmmaker mode, which would ensure that when you watched a piece of content like that, there was nothing, there was no tomfoolery going on by the television. But to my question, no, my and question is, my how answer does to what you're know? saying is, there is no, as far maybe in the streaming service world, but in Blu-rays, DVDs, any other content, there is no metadata standard which says alternate the TV to filmmaker standard. So then how does it then how does it even work? Why is it even like you could turn it on, sure, but then you just I mean look, don't get me if, wrong. Yeah, if you turn I, I am, you I'm turn it on, that's how it works. But you turn it on to turn everything off. Exactly. So just turn and, everything I don't need it to be called filmmaker mode. Just well, turn see, it off the fucking off. But but you've just acknowledged the problem as well, which is that you go to people's houses and people don't know that you have to turn all this stuff off, right? Right. So, so now but now we have to determine if it's being defaulted on because that's the sort of thing. You there's a setting that says filmmaker mode. You switch it to that, and you can be assured that you are watching whatever it is you're watching in a mode that doesn't add any chicanery or tomfoolery uh, on top of the material. Okay, which, well, that's which is good. what televisions were doing. Yeah. At any rate, uh, <laughs> the Oscars were shot in 24 frames per second widescreen. I think it was 235. Uh, it opened with uh, a lovely shot of Regina King walking into the venue uh, with sort of credit titles playing, uh, which no less from the director of the Oceans trilogy kind of felt like a heist of some kind was happening or some sort of event was about to go on. I thought I, I actually liked all of that. Uh, there was some uh, mutterings on the Internet about the lack of host uh, this year, which um, I 
you know, look, I do enjoy uh, a good host uh, taking off the show, but I do tend to find the host is great for the opening monologue, and then they're there just to kind of like introduce everybody and maybe make pithy one-liners here and there. Um, I didn't watch the show, so whether it really affected me or not, I don't know. Um, it didn't bother me. I, I don't. I don't know about any of those things. How do you the, feel? The, the choices of the show you didn't watch didn't bother you. Yeah, the choices of the show I didn't watch didn't bother me. <laughs> well, that's good. It'd yeah. be bad if they did. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's my point. Is that is that um, I care not for the choices yeah. that the Oscars make. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about some of the uh, the more direct choices that they made. All right, some of the awards. I think we'll just go through some of the we'll go through like the 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 big name awards. Um, Best Cinematography, for example, the nominees were Judas and the Black Messiah, News of the World, Nomadland, The Trial of Chicago 7, and Mank, which won. Uh, this, of course, was the film that was filmed in uh, black and white, and I believe w- now has won more Oscars than Citizen Kane, the film it was actually originally referring to, um, and um, won a Cinematography Award where Greg Toland, I don't believe, won the Citizen Award for Citizen Kane, the movie it is directly referencing. Um it's a great-looking movie. Uh, of these, I may have picked um, Sean Babbitt for Judas and the Black Messiah myself personally, uh, or Nomadland. I think Nomad- those two movies were kind of primed to win it, but, you know, good for them. Sure. <laughs> I like the way Mank looks. I, 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 you're going to notice something in all of my things. All of these are going to be, sure. Yeah, sure. I... <laughs> Uh, Best Adapted Screenplay, Borat's Subsequent Movie Film, The Father, Nomadland, One Night in Miami, or The White Tiger, the Ramin Barani film, uh, which I have yet to see um, and I want to see. The Best Adapted Screenplay went to The Father, based on the play uh, of the same uh, from the same author. Sure. Great. I love it. Yeah. I think The Father's great. Uh, best original screenplay. <laughs> this is, we're just going to do a lot of the shores on well, this one. Well, so this is the thing. Like, I don't even know if we need to just read nominations or anything. Like, is there anything that happened that like, uh, that was shocking? That was, that you were upset by that you're like, Oh no, this should have won. Like, Oh, there, there are different choices I would have personally made, but what's I, the biggest one, but people don't care what I think. And no, I, no, 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 and, no, no. And what, and here, my, my bigger point is what I, what, what I think doesn't matter because I think the choices that were made were fine. But I know, but Shahir, literally the only thing that matters is for someone listening to us right now is what you think, (laughs) not what reading out what happened. It's the reaction to the thing. All right. Based original screenplay, uh, Promising Young Woman won. That was not my pick of the night. Uh, What was your pick of the night? It would have been Minaria Sound of Metal for me. Yeah. Uh, But but good for Emerald Fennel for winning that award, Um, you know. Uh, you were much more favorable on this film than I was. Um, I was happy to see this because it felt like an odd duck to win. Mm -hmm. Um, Not because I don't think it's deserving, but because it's something I didn't think the Academy would sort of vibe with. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet there it was. Though Minari, Sound of Metal, Minari was one of my absolute favorites of the year. Like that, that's just, uh, I, I, I would have thrown everything at Minari. Right. Um, but I, I liked that that happened. Um, yeah. I was trying to think if there was anything else super weird. Well, uh, I, I just, uh, my octopus teacher seemed to be having a moment in the documentary field. I have started watching Time. I didn't finish it, um, but it, 
that is quite extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of people are uh, in love with Collective, the movie about the um, Romanian uh, he- uh, journalist uh, health care scandal, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, best animated feature went to Seoul. Uh, I know a lot of people are upset about Wolf Walkers not walking away with that. Uh, I have not seen Wolf Walkers, but I Same. know that studio has been making headways for the last year. Uh, they boomed their movie, The Secret of Callas, uh, is one that everyone seems to love. Best international feature, another round. Thomas Vinterberg gave a really impassioned speech, which he described, where he talked about his daughter's death. Yep. Uh, affecting, I heard that was, yeah, yeah. that was a, mm. a moving moment. Yeah, it was a very moving moment. All right, and here we go. These are the big ones. Uh, best supporting actor, Daniel Kaluuya, Judas and the Black Messiah. Yep. Can't disagree with anything about that. Um, you know, uh, amazing for Paul Rachie if he would have won. Odd that uh, Daniel Kaluuya is up against Lakeith Stanfield. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, hard to dispute the the performance there at all. Uh, best supporting astri- uh, actress, Eugene Moyon for Minari. Yes! Uh, she had a great moment where she uh, said hi to Brad Pitt for the first time, despite him being the producer on the film, yep. um, which was fun. Best director, this is historic, uh, Chloe Zhao for Nomadland. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the mm-hmm. first director in... 20 years or something a, like that yeah, there's the only second been two directors in the history of the academy awards to win this award uh so that's incredible um best actress well, not just the two the uh, asian american and asian american as well there's a, yeah. there's an interesting article uh that i read this week about uh china's soft power in the culture uh in in in, in cultural communications and how this this win should have been a major moment for China in the same way that Parasite's win was a major moment for South Korea. Uh, but China has not acted in this way because of uh, some part of the relationship with Chloe Zhao, not personally, but like in terms of the way she makes films about America and, and for some, uh, as, as I understand, for, um, for the Chinese, that might not be um, with, you know, like, really worth celebrating i'm not exactly sure i don't know that yeah Yeah. i don't know that stuff Uh, but it's interesting to sort of think about the oscars as soft power to to say it in the dumbest possible way the dumbest president that we've ever had um would make comments about the oscar wins and i'm just not going to repeat them here but also released a statement about this year's oscars which was the dumbest shit i've ever read it made (laughs) me dumber for having read it and i will not inflict it upon you because this person is the dumbest piece of shit on the face of the planet and i don't give a shit what he says um now this was the controversial thing i guess of the of the night that had everyone up in arms they decided to run... Oh, Francis McDormand won for Nomadland, three-time Academy Award winner now. That was pretty much in the bag. Pretty much in the bag. Um, they decided to run Best Picture before Best Actor. And this seemed to make people very upset on the internet. I understand why. I don't care, but I understand why. I also understand why they did it, which is that they decided to run Best Picture. Nomadland, which had kind of you know had this in the bag for for a long time, won Best Picture, uh, and then they decided to award Best Actor, uh, probably thinking that Chadwick Boseman was going to win for My Rainey's Black Bottom, and that would be a sort of bittersweet end to the night. What actually happened was that Anthony Hopkins won for The Father, and Anthony Hopkins was not in attendance, and the event just wrapped up. Um, There's a couple of things that I can see why people are upset about this. The first being um, placing Best Actor behind Best Picture, stole the thunder away from Nomadland, having the sort of final moment of the night, which is something we see every year. You know, Parasite winning the Best Picture last year. Um, Secondly, uh, people were... 
notable journalists whom I very deeply respect were angry at Anthony Hopkins or angry at the producers. And I was like, I'm not sure what part of the Oscars they're confusing here. Like the, the, the producers don't know who's going to win. Yeah. They made a gamble that, that they thought Chadwick Boseman would win and it would be a moment at the end of the evening and it didn't turn out that way. I don't know. What do you think about all of this? I mean, it's it's very, very, very silly to get upset at Anthony Hopkins <laughs> yeah. uh, for for winning the Oscar. Uh, you and should... delivering an amazing performance. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if you want to get mad at someone, you can get mad at the Academy. Like, they're the ones that choose a winner. Mm. Not, like, you don't... It's just dumb. Mm. I, I didn't read any of the articles, so I, go, I don't want to go too deep in. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it... it... <sighs> It's hard, man. Again, producers, they they took a gamble. I don't know if I would have taken that gamble yeah. uh, if I was in that seat. Uh, it also just kind of feels weird. Mm-hmm. Like, what? I, now I'm not even beyond the uh, air quotes controversialness of of the of the the award itself. Um, why? Like, you could still have, if you're gambling on that moment, you could still have that moment and have it be a really strong moment elsewhere. Like, I. Well, what? what, Do you mean the Chadwick Boseman moment? If Chadwick Boseman won, it's going to be powerful no matter what. Right. Like, like, you're not. That just feels like to be. Well, and here we go. Like, again, I was like, you can't be mad at Anthony Hopkins. I guess you could be like, all right, that's a bonehead move, producers. Like, why did you do that? That just seems like. Move the. Move the the flip flop the uh, the awards because because look you're you're taking a gamble and every gamble should be a value proposition and the value you're gaining for doing it isn't that much more than if you didn't do it so you're taking a chance for no good reason like I, it it doesn't vibe with me I don't know I didn't yeah. Uh, but again, uh, I didn't watch the show. <laughs> yeah, I guess it, I guess what people were angry about is that the show left on a seemingly low note. Uh, you know, like in terms of like Anthony Hopkins wasn't there. I'm not mad at Anthony Hopkins not being there. We're in a pandemic. Dude's 83 years old, living yeah. his life in Wales. Yeah, you know, and he just won an Academy Award. Good for him. Yeah, um, and and I guess unlike unlike other years, everyone in this category is great. You know, every anyone could have taken this award, and it's great. Um, so I ain't mad. You know, like it's a thing. It happened. You know, great. <laughs> no. uh, I think that should be our that should be our quote for the Oscars every year. It's a thing that happened. Great. great. <laughs> uh, this has been a very anticlimactic episode yeah, this is the to our, anticlimactic our ending to our episodes. <laughs> I mean, that's great, uh, Shahir. When we're not downplaying any and all remote non-excitement that we had for the Academy Awards, where can folks find you? You can find me um, writing or, or making terrible memes on the internet on my website, www.shahirdad.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com. Matt, when you are numenuming your way through, uh, through not watching the Academy Awards, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me submitting my reel to be a bit actor in Dog Cop 7 <laughs> on my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com, my life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or Emperor MSK on Twitter. Also, please check out the good works we are doing over at Extra Credits. I believe by the time this airs, ooh, yeah, uh, we're going to have a few things that we're going to have our Battle at the Milvian Bridge episode, which uh, Sega was so kind to sponsor uh, uh, to, to promote their total... Uh, uh, Total War Rome Remastered. Uh, there, uh, that is a phenomenal game. That actually, that company is the reason why initially, before I even joined Extra Credits, that Extra History began. 
they partnered with them and to promote to- uh, Rome Total War Two. So like the reason why extra history is a thing is because of this partnership. So it was a really nice sort of synergistic moment to like get to do it again. Hmm. Um, it was very very nice. Uh, also, uh, we have a really good uh, uh, episode uh, called "Fail Faster to Fail Better," which is about sort of like not only <laughs> being quick, being able to uh, learn from failure, drive things from it, etc. Like fail and move on to try something new. You know, at a at a decent click, that's how you get better the fastest as you can. But also like methods that that uh, our game designer Ryan Ryan who works um who worked on games like Valorant and League of Legends. Um, he was a guest writer for this episode on the emotional resonance and the, and the the way you can deal with it sort of in an actionable and emotional way when something's not working and how you can sort of move on quickly. Yeah. Um, it's 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 very, very good. Please check all that stuff out. Um, yeah. Uh, what are we doing next week, Shahir? I have no idea this week. We did get uh, a little bit of uh, a, a Twitter uh, comment that, they, that we should have done One Night in Miami. Uh, we also should have done the 40-year-old version. We also should have, should have done Collective. We also should have done Time. Uh, we also should do My Octopus Teacher. There's lots of things we should be doing. Uh, time doesn't always permit, and time is a flat circle. So with that flat circle in mind, I will find something for us to we'll watch figure next it out. week. We'll figure it Hopefully, out. Hopefully, uh, the one that won't be releasing at the end of the week, because it is a little stressful for us to... Uh, watch the movie on the last day of our recording to make sure that we get the episode at Sunday at 5.30, which we always want to do. Um, so we'll try to find something that come out, come out a little bit earlier. If you have suggestions, please email us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at onlymoviepod. Wow, okay. Well, we broke you here. Everybody, have a hope you're having a wonderful morning, evening, any time of day you listen to us, and we will talk at you next week with movies. <laughs> no, but with... <laughs> With the, we're going to change the format to be a cooking show. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited because I can make eggs like a motherfucker. There we go. <laughs> I will make chicken. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.